Thank you for joining us here on Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady with Lou Weiss, who is the founder of Manufacturing Talk Radio. And we are doing interviews with the Institute for Supply Management at their conference in Orlando, Florida, which is taking place at the moment, and posting those interviews on our website. And some very exciting things, and, and one in particular that you should pay attention to is our interview with Credit Risk Monitor. It, it might wake you up, it might scare you to death, Lou. I took a Valium a little while ago, so I think it'll be okay. Uh, it, interesting stuff, and uh, I, I, we really will enjoy Tom Derry, uh, press CEO of the Institute of Supply Management, who uh, you and I know for about 10 years. Uh, and great organization. It's been around since uh, uh, 100 and some odd years. The uh, Jay Shipman uh, Award uh, was started in 1931, which they are going to have the award winner today. And uh, actually, we will be interviewing that gentleman. So stick around and uh, listen to what everybody's got to say. It's a wild and woolly place that we're living in right now. It, it certainly is. And so, as Lou said, stay tuned. Thanks for joining us here on Manufacturing Talk Radio in our interviews for the Institute for Supply Management Conference in Orlando, Florida. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are very pleased to be joined by Jimmy Ankelsaria, who is the founder of the Ankelsaria Group, and Lou and I have been talking with Jimmy about his presence at the Institute for Supply Management, or the ISM's conference, down in Orlando, Florida, because Jimmy received the J. Shipman Gold Medal Award, which is given to one supply chain executive each year. It's the highest award that the Institute for Supply Management gives to someone who's devoted their life to supply chain and procurement. So, Jimmy, welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Oh, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Lou. Pleasure to be here. And congratulations to you. Well, thank you. It's very humbling. So, why don't you give us a little background uh, with, without all the degrees and so on and so forth, but give us a little insight into how you got to where you are. Well, Lou, I, I grew up in India and uh, was um, more in the accounting, finance, and law background uh, in, a, in a family of entrepreneurs, very large uh, liquor business. And um, I came to the United States in 1983 to do an MBA uh, with the intention of picking up some knowledge of the West and taking it back and uh, changing the course of my family companies. And I met a professor at the University of San Diego, David Burt, who convinced me uh, in a very interesting and very commonsensical way why procurement was this strategically important function within an organization. Because as a young, brash finance guy, I felt uh, procurement was basically three bids in a cloud of dust. <laughs> so he convinced me that, um, you know, if 60 to 70% of the company's revenue is spent through this organization, call it purchasing, procurement, supply chain, you name it, um, how could you possibly spend that type of money through an organization that you consider not strategic? So I drank the Kool-Aid and um, 
Uh, I wanted to learn from him, which I did. He was my mentor, my professor, and then became my co-author, my friend, until he passed away sadly last year at the ripe old age of 89. And um, in the meantime, um, we wrote a book called Zero Based Pricing in the late 80s, along with the head of uh, procurement at Polaroid, Warren Norquist. So that book, um, Zero Based Pricing, sort of catapulted me because I was the young guy among the three and I went out to do the speaking. And uh, before I knew it, uh, I was getting calls from all around the world to come talk to them about zero-based pricing, which is nothing better or worse than cost modeling. And, uh, and then it was pretty much, um, you know, going around the world and transforming some of the biggest and best companies. And uh, I learned more than what I taught, I'll be honest with you. And as part of my philanthropic side, give back to uh, university, give back to academia by not only giving them money to build buildings and endowments, but also to give myself. So I've taught at least one class at the University of San Diego from 85 to 2005. And then from 2006 today, till today, I've been at the University of California, UCSD, Rady School of Management, which we've now moved over to the School of Engineering. So uh, it's been a great ride. I, couldn't have asked for anything more. So uh, the question, which some of our listeners may be questioning themselves, what is zero-based pricing? Well, it's very simple. I mean, it's just like zero-based budgeting. You see the typical tendency is when a supplier gives you a price, you look at that price and try to get five or 10 or 15% down from a price. And uh, my, my theory and my, my belief is a percentage of a wrong number is a wrong number. So if you took 100% and that number is wrong and you took 20% off, all you have is 0.8 wrong number. So zero-based pricing was created uh, initially at Polaroid to do a bottoms-up cost build-up. So before you decide what a price is, you start by saying, what are the elements of cost, material, labor, overhead, GSA, and profit, and try to use data and factual basis to build up that and say, okay, if the cost is 60 or 70 or whatever it is, what is a fair margin? And it's not what's fair, it's what's competitive. So being able to understand from industry statistics what a certain industry margin would be, and then making sure the supplier is rewarded for that margin. So if you're in an industry where the margin is 2%, like in the grocery business, and we were able to give you 3%, you should be happy and not expect 25%, which is what the software company would make. So it's basically fact-based negotiation from a bottoms up blue, if, I, if that's a, quite a quick way of answering it. Is the economy the way it is right now uh, affecting the zero base pricing? Absolutely. In fact, uh, last week I was on a webinar with a group in London and my topic was managing costs during inflationary periods. You see, the thing about cost management, everybody thinks that cost management means you lower the price. It's not true. Because if I'm buying something which is fabricated from steel or plastics in today's world, I'm buying a plastic housing, and my supplier comes back and tells me that, uh, you know, Plastic prices have gone up, oil oil has gone up uh, 50, 60%, uh, natural gas has gone up 122%. And if that's my main ingredient, how am I 
conceivably going to give you a 10% discount when my input costs have gone up by 50, 60, 70%. But that doesn't mean that um, I can't use my modeling because what I could do is I could, and there are so many ways, I don't want to lecture your audience here, but common sense tells me if, for example, just hypothetically, uh, and this is a real life story, actually, I had someone telling me, Jimmy, I manage ground logistics, ground transportation, and fuel has gone up. You don't have to check. I can go out and look at the gas station and fuel has gone up 50, 60%. So the supplier has asked for a 50% fuel surcharge. And uh, he said, well, I'm thinking of negotiating it down to 30%. And I remember telling him, I said, if you work for me, you're fired. <laughs> and he said, well, what do you mean? I mean, they've asked for a 50% increase and I'm going to negotiate it down to 30%. And I spent $80 million. So this is, this is a great savings. And I repeated, I said, yeah, but if you work for me, you're fired. And he, he looked, well, you're, you're certainly not the old president of the United States, right, to fire me. I said, well, I'll tell you what. Tell me before you say anything else, how much of that 100% that you pay the supplier, which is the supplier's revenue, how much of that revenue do you think is going to the fuel suppliers for those trucks? So well, I don't know. I said, well, if you're managing $85 million, you better darn well know where that money is going. Uh, otherwise, I'm, if I'm your boss, I'm, I'm going to be pretty upset that you can't write a check of $85 million and not know where that goes. So, uh, you know, to, to make it short and to also help him along, I said, well, let me tell you that in a transport company, fuel is about 12 to 15% of the total because you've got direct labor, which is the driver's salary. That's far more than the fuel. You got depreciation of the equipment. You've got tires, repairs, road taxes, registration, etc. Then you've got the whole corporate CEO, CFO, IT department, HR department, all that costs money. So fuel is about 12 to 15%. So if 15% has gone up by 50%, that's seven and a half percent on the total not 30% and not 50%. So fact-based and showing, by the way, 50% is not 50% across the board. If you've got good procurement, you should be buying futures contracts, et cetera. So not everybody, you and I as a retail people, yeah, we have no choice. We have to go and fill up at the gas station. But if you're buying hundreds and thousands of gallons, uh, you're not getting it from the gas station the way we are. So that kind of triggers the way of talking, you know, that uh, we talk from knowledge, we talk from strength, and uh, we educate the supplier that we're not, we're not stupid. You know? Point of information, today being uh, May 23, 22. 23rd, yeah, that's right. Uh, oil today was $110 a barrel. It's better than 112 on Friday, so... This is true. <laughs> so you're trying to show me you know your stuff, huh? <laughs> Jimmy, I'm just, uh, Jimmy, I'm just curious. You know, for the last 50 years, all of us being in a relatively same age group, we never heard about supply chain, procurement, buyers, and the mainstream news. In the last six months, it's on every newscast. You've got to be excited about that. Uh, it's the best challenge, Tim. Uh, in fact, um, I always tell people, this is your moment. Seize it with both hands. Because uh, if I go back to when I drank the Kool-Aid in 1984, all I've heard is the same. 
we need a seat at the CEO's table. Procurement needs a seat at the CEO's table. And I'm like, you can keep whining and hollering and stuff. What are you doing about it? How are you educating senior level management? Now, I was a young guy, but I was also pretty senior level. I was on the boards of so many different profit and nonprofit companies, thanks to my family uh, position. And as I said, honestly, I had seen the procurement people. You know, the finance CFO would come and make a presentation at the board. The head of marketing would make a presentation at the board. The R&D people made a presentation at the board. I never saw a procurement person at the board. So of course, who heard of procurement? But they were doing their stuff. When the toilet paper is not available in the restroom, yeah, you're going to hear from the CEO real fast. Right? <laughs> because as they say, that's a crappy problem. <laughs> but you're not going to get that from the average Joe or Jane because procurement is doing their job. And I think, sadly, the pandemic to start with, but now we've got semiconductors, we've got a crap load, quite honestly, from toilet paper to, you know, baby food and stuff like that. It's sad, but suddenly the supply chain procurement has become visible. But they've always been solving problems, Tim and Lou, and they will solve these problems now that they're getting the attention and the funding to do so. No doubt. I, I fully believe it, yeah. Uh, the baby food issue, which is very current right now, uh, is really a horrible situation, to say the least. Uh, I think right now we have two or three uh, military aircraft that's flying in. Uh, to land in, in, uh, in Indiana, uh, I guess because of distribution points going every which way. Um, I wonder what the cost is on new baby food. Well, see, that's, that's one of the things. Uh, when you do stuff during a crisis, cost goes out the window. Availability is number one. Right. You know? Try and tell a mom that you're going to have to let your baby starve because you're not willing to pay 50% more for baby food, you know. But um, it is, it is, it's very, very unfortunate. Uh, I'm not saying it could have been pre predicted or prevented, but it could have been managed better. And I'll leave it at that. I don't want to get into politics. Yeah, we don't, we don't do politics here. We we stay away from that. I've learned that. I learned that very early, very early yeah. in my we'll life. We'll talk about politics when we're off air. <laughs> Happy to do that. Happy to do that, my friend. <laughs> well, Jerry, I'm excited to talk to you about your award, certainly deserving of it, all of the years that you put in and all of the philanthropic work that you're doing. Where do you see some of these you know, transportation, the shortage of rums uh, resolving itself? Do you see some kind of time frame? Or is it going to be resolved by the next recession? Uh, I certainly hope before the next recession. But um, I think, you see, what happens is most business, whether it's transportation, whether it's semiconductors, baby foods, oil, you name it. Uh, see, as long as you have enough gray hair, like uh, maybe all three of us, uh, every, you know, e economies go in cycles. And uh, some cycles are steeper, but we always know that after every down, there's always an upside. The question is how fast you can shrink that so it doesn't take 12 months or 15 months, it takes 10 months or six months. So I think what's happening here is unfortunately, the pandemic certainly, you know, I don't think anyone in their wildest dreams could have predicted 
that one, we would have a pandemic. It's like being in California, the big one's coming. Well, I've been there for 39 years. <laughs> I'm still waiting for a big one, or maybe I'm not waiting for it. But the thing is, I think uh, better planning needs to be in place, regardless of whether we have a, uh, a pandemic or not. So I think what's happening, and you're seeing it already, is this greed of chasing what I call labor arbitrage. And I'm not getting political, but I'm very passionate about this topic. You see, in the 90s, what happened was China became this place for labor arbitrage. Yes, it was at almost a 10 to 1 uh, ratio with uh, people. But as a person who's focused my 30 plus years on cost management and cost breakdowns, labor is becoming a smaller and smaller and smaller component of the total cost of the total price. And today in many of the high tech uh, places, I mean, labor is not even 5%. And when you add the cost of inefficiencies, the cost of transportation, the cost of money, blocking up inventory for so many weeks because you're buying something from overseas. So I think the writing was on the wall, but unfortunately some greedy companies either didn't want to make the change because it would cost five cents more to bring it closer, or they, in many cases, they didn't know what it costs. And this is an embarrassment, but many times you chased business to another country because keeping up with the Joneses, everybody's going there, we must go there. Nobody bothered to really check what are the total cost of ownership? What's the cost of delay? What's the cost of a planned shutdown? And what's the probability of shutting it down when you have an overseas supplier where it takes six weeks to get the product through? So I think it was bad, bad overall e economic management, not just the pandemic, you know? And then suddenly what happens is you've got rid of your infrastructure. The infrastructure has moved to other countries. Now, even if we wanted to resource and onshore, we don't have the capacity, number one. Number two, we don't have the people. Now, I want to get into immigration here, all right? But we don't have the people. You don't have enough engineers. You don't have enough craftsmen in this country. So we're not going to be able to bring things back. We could nearshore it. Mexico could become the next China for us. And it's already happening. But all this takes time. And I was talking to a group uh, a few weeks ago. This is going to take a generation because we've got to retrain our workforce re all the way from schools to, to universities where the United States People in general were happier making money, moving money around, working on Wall Street, working for financial institutions. We've forgotten what built America, which is good manufacturing. So your audience, manufacturing talks. I think, unfortunately, in the United States, manufacturing was snoring, not talking. So we're in a situation now where, and you're, you're right, we don't have enough people. We don't have enough people in manufacturing. We don't have enough blue collars. Uh, guys with white hair are retiring or dying. But it's a serious we do, have, we do have a situation right now coming out of Europe. We have Ukraine with all these trained technicians and work people. Why not bring them here? Okay, Lou, you're getting me a little bit into politics now because that's what- A little bit. But that's that that you, you're absolutely bang on. We should be importing engineers, we should be importing craftsmen, machine operators, etc. 
there's no question about it. We need them uh, versus opening up a border and letting anyone walk through. Correct. You know, but but that, that's, a, that's out of my, my wheelhouse. But you're right, absolutely. The second thing we need to do is we need to do what countries like China and other countries did. We've got to open up free trade zones. We've got to encourage the Germans to come and build here. We need Swiss to come and build here to bring in United States. We've never been short of capital. We are the capital of the world in the sense the business capital and the financial money is available in the United States. So we don't need investors. We've got investors. What we need is the technology, the people, the equipment to rebuild American manufacturing. And we just don't have it right now. Now, Very true. Now I see why you won the award that you did win. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Well, you certainly know a lot more than Tim and I do. And, <laughs> but we're only making believe. You really know the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Again, congratulations for the Jay Shipman Award. And, thank you. and we appreciate hearing from you because in your voice in your passion we can hear as Lou said why you won that award you're certainly deserving and thanks for joining us thank well, you thank very you much. thank you tim and thank you Lou. it's been my pleasure our pleasure thank you and we want to thank all of you who are watching manufacturing talk radio keep in mind that the ism conference is taking place this week may 23rd it started on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so there's a lot of exciting information coming out of that. Jimmy's one of those people that's providing some of that exciting information. Go to jacketmediaco.com if you'd like to learn more, and thanks for watching. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.